Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. The Beatles began in a time when recording artists were essentially the playthings of their record companies. The executives said jump and artists simply asked how high. Pop artists made only a small fraction of what the companies earned and were grateful for it. The pop world was rife with stories of singers and bands who were at the whim of their record labels and their producers, who drove them into the ground with unrealistic schedules and unrelenting demands while giving the artist very little creative sway. Elvis Presley, the biggest star in the world at the time, is a classic example of the us and them attitudes which had pervaded show business for decades. The Beatles, at least at first, were no exception to this rule. After signing with EMI, substandard recording and publishing deals hung over their heads even after they had emerged as the greatest show on earth. As early as 1964, manager Brian Epstein was looking for ways to minimise the amount of tax the Beatles paid, including establishing their own company, Beatles Limited, which eventually became Beatles & Co in early 1967. Irrespective of the amount of tax the Beatles paid, which was incredibly hefty, as outlined in George's song Taxman, which wasn't exaggerating by talking about one for you and 19 for me, as the group were paying a top marginal tax rate of 95%. However, they were still worth millions. Brian Epstein was still investigating ways to better manage the Beatles' money and had planted the seeds of what would become Apple. They were told by their accountants that they had around £2 million that they could either invest in a business venture or lose to the taxman, because business taxes were lower than individual tax bills. To the Beatles, this was a no-brainer. We found when our manager died that we were involved with a hell of a lot of things that we didn't particularly want to be involved in, or that maybe we did want to be involved in, but we didn't want everybody else to be involved in. So really, Apple, all Apple was, it was Beatles Limited, which we changed into Apple, and we tried to pull all our own affairs together into one company. And we liked, uh, thought of the idea of being able to do records without having to go to somebody and say, please, can we do a record? Whose idea was Apple? I don't know. It was sort of around, I think, before Brian died. I think, actually, the idea for Apple was the accountant's idea. You must diversify. So the big theory was that we'd put all our affairs into sort of one bundle. We'd have it as our own company, Apple, would be a record label, all the things we'd ever wanted to do. It would be very Quite tragic if we weren't more heavily involved in the future. Right. We've got the respect for each other's ability and integrity. What the, I can't think of any other requirements that business associates need. 
But, which we, we now think, Tell me your Dick, problems, Dick, we now think that it's time we sorted it out a bit more I will try early. I promise you. We were just guys goofing off, having a lot of fun, um, trying to get things under our control. That was basically what we're trying to do, which a lot of people do now. They have their own companies. They, they, they take lawyers to meetings and get good deals and things, you know. It was the start of all of that, but it was a pretty haphazard start. But it's up to us whether we do it or not. So, Dick, that's it. You go away and you come back with something which, you know, won't start this argument again. The new company would be multifaceted dealing in music, film, electronics, publishing and merchandising. Similar in structure to the highly successful Woolworths chain, and would of course work for the Beatles more than they worked for it, a direct juxtaposition to what they had experienced since 1962. This is London, the home of Apple. The Apple concept is to bring together the artists of today with the methods and media of tomorrow. To do this, Apple has entered into many diverse fields of communication. Films, television, and of course records are all part of this. Of course, things changed drastically in August 1967 with the death of Brian Epstein. It was rumoured that Australian businessman Robert Stigwood, best known at this point for managing Cream and the Bee Gees, was looking to buy a controlling share of Epstein's company, NEMS Enterprises, and therefore the Beatles' publishing rights. This news prompted the Beatles, and especially Paul McCartney, to take more control over their careers and their money. The name Apple was Paul's suggestion, inspired by the idea that the first thing a child learns as he grows up is that A is for Apple, a metaphor for the new kind of business they were establishing. And the Apple symbol itself was also Paul's idea. After seeing a René Magritte painting of a green apple with the words au revoir written across it. Friend and art gallery owner Robert Fraser had just bought the painting and was visiting Paul's house in Cavendish Avenue, leaving it propped up on a table in the sitting room just before he left the house unannounced. To Paul, it was perfect. Apple began to really fruit when it moved into its own offices in Baker Street, London, with its very own hippie boutique at Street Level. Meanwhile, back in London, when the Beatles open a shop in Baker Street, everything slows down. throw from Orchard Street, it's the Apple, the Beatles' new boutique. To mark the opening, the proud owners gave an apple juice party. John Lennon and George Harrison were the hosts. The other two Beatles were out of town. Paul's in Liverpool and Ringo's in Rome. Disc jockey Alan Freeman talking to Silla Black. A later arrival, Richard Lester, director of the Beatles' films, among a whole host of the in crowd. goofing off, having a lot of fun, um, trying to get 
things under our control. That was basically what we're trying to do, which a lot of people do now. They have their own companies. They, they, they take lawyers to meetings and get good deals and things, you know. It was the start of all of that, but it was a pretty haphazard start. On sale will be books, jewelry, paintings, and hippie clothes, as well as furniture. Apart from the loony clothes, and the uh, kind of hippie flower power stuff. There was supposed to be, you know, all kinds of like different music, which now they'd call world music, you know, we were selling, that's what we're supposed to do, and sell all these books about various things that we were into, various art or spiritual things, and incense and, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. It, it kind of looked quite good. The concept of Apple is to bring together the artists of today with the methods and media of tomorrow. The building was very nice, the counts and the, the, the painting was gorgeous, the fool did that. There was a group of artists, uh, basically from Holland, put this beautiful big mural on the wall. And uh, the council got all the knickers in a twist and said, no, you've got to paint it white again. We said, are you kidding? It's beautiful, everyone loves it. Some residents probably objected. Mm. So then we were going to project it, paint it white and project it from the opposite thing. You know, we were, it was all full of that. It were good ideas, you know. Some of them you just didn't do, you never got round to them. But it was a great ideas time. Unfortunately, with Epstein's passing, there was nobody the Beatles really knew or trusted to run such a company. So they decided to run it themselves. Well, not completely. The Beatles gathered a group of friends who would assist in running the various departments and divisions of Apple. Peter Asher, brother of Paul's girlfriend at the time, Jane Asher, and recording star in his own right as half of Peter and Gordon, was asked to become the AR, or Artists and Repertoire Man, for Apple Records. Paul asked me to be part of Apple Records pretty early on. First he asked if I would produce some records for Apple because that's what I was doing at the time. I was sort of a a newly uh, anointed record producer and um, ex-artist. And then he later asked me if I would be head of A&R for the label. The job of general manager was offered to longtime Beatles assistant Alastair Taylor. Peter Asher explains. I don't remember the exact order that people came in in. Uh, Neil Aspinall, of course, was, was not brought in. Neil existed in the Beatles' lives and had done forever. He was kind of running the Beatles' affairs from being tour manager and kind of growing up to where the tour manager role became kind of a company manager and kind of managing director of the whole thing role. Having worked as the Beatles' publicist during 1964, then leaving after a dramatic falling out with Brian Epstein after their first US tour, Derek Taylor stayed a loyal friend to the Beatles and was soon employed as Apple publicist. Derek Taylor was working for the Beatles before Apple. He's always been a, you know, a PR genius and, and one of the most affable and entertaining men any of us have ever known. Quite brilliant. He'd been part of the Beatles' lives. It was inevitable he would become part of Apple's life. So his, his floor became uh, the hub of the entertainment aspect of Apple and, and the sort of party aspect of Apple, it must be said as well. When you actually finish the day's work, you'd end up in Derek's office having a cocktail at the very least. They all rang from England when, one morning, morning my time, and said, we're starting this company, Apple. 
So we went, we up to, went to live in um, Surrey and I worked for Apple, became Apple press officer again. And then a little later, I think, Ron Cass came in because in the various discussions we'd had between myself and the Beatles, we all thought we needed a proper grown-up businessman who we all thought should be American because we had this sort of respect for, oh, Americans really know what they're doing. And um, so we brought Ron Cass in to be the actual business head of the label. In the spirit of altruism and stung by their own dealings with the creative industry's business machine, the Beatles decided to launch their own record label, not surprisingly with Hey Jude by themselves as the first ever release on Apple Records in late August 1968. Apple Records were involved in the release of the Beatles records to the extent the Beatles wanted them to be, but as a practical contractual business issue, they were still on EMI Records in the UK, which meant they came out via Capitol Records in the US, but all with Apple labels stuck on them. But certainly, from my point of view as head of A&R, I had nothing to do with those records. They were making those records just the way they always made them. But of course, to have a record label, you need artists to record for it. The idea then was to throw the doors open to anyone who wanted a record contract and to sign those who were deemed worthy. But first, the word had to get out. Publicity was the key. This initially took the form of Alastair Taylor dressing up as a one-man band for a publicity campaign designed to attract new and exciting artists to Apple Records. Well, it turned out, of course, that at Apple Records, going about attracting artists was not a task. Obviously, everyone in the whole universe wanted to be on Apple Records. It sounded so cool. It was the Beatles label. That's all you had to say. They did run the one ad with the picture of the one-man band saying, send us your tapes and things, and we got billions of them. Well, what we did, you see, we did this mad thing of like, maybe put an ad in the paper or something saying, send us your tapes, and they will not be shown straight into the waste paper basket. You know, we will answer. We just got inundated with tapes and poetry and scripts and shoo. And in actual fact, I don't really think we got any bands or any artists by that method. The tragic thing is, of course, we never found anything through that route that was any good. Because, of course, that, that fell to my world as head of A&R. And quite apart from all the other ideas, which would usually funnel to Derek, people who wanted money to levitate or something totally bizarre. Uh, you know, the sole purpose of Apple was not to... People didn't have to beg anymore. Artists, they had a valid idea. We would front them. And, you know, we had a publishing company, a record company, and we could, we could use that in these companies. But, you know, we should have had a big sign, you don't have to beg. We had some kind of ideas on wouldn't it be nice if, you know, because we got screwed in business all the time. And, uh, you know, how you have to go down on your knees. That was the famous one that John said, you know, we don't want people to have to go down on their knees. It's business concerning records, films, and electronics and as a sideline, whatever it's called, manufacturing or whatever. But we want to set up a system 
whereby people who just want to make a film about anything don't have to go on their knees in somebody's office, probably yours. In May 1968, John and Paul decided to expand their idea of recording contracts for all in the other massive market, the United States. Flying into New York City, press conferences and interviews were given as to what their ideas were, including with old friend of the group from their early US tours, journalist Larry Kane. Gentlemen, it's good to see you again. Nice Larry, to see you, Larry. Nice to see you, Larry. Uh, what is Apple, John? It's a, it's a company we're setting up which involves records, films, electronics, which make records and films work, and uh, what's it called, manufacturing? Yeah, it does a few things. You know, you know the byproducts that end up with Larry Page uh, T-shirts and that. It's oh. just trying to mix business with enjoyment. Pleasure. Because we're in business, you know, we find ourselves in business. Are you, the directors? Make it, Are you the directors yeah. of this? Yeah. But, yeah. like, all the profits won't go into our pockets. They'll go to help people, but not like a charity. What do you plan? Somebody wants works. to make a film and no. They go to a company and they get shown into the waste paper bin <laughs> and uh, nothing ever happens. So they go around, they make an underground one and it goes round and round underground and a lot of people never see it. Nice. So if they come to us, they won't stand a chance. <laughs> but we hope to make a thing that's free where people can just come and do and record and not have to ask, could we have another microphone in the studio because we haven't had a hit yet. I see. How expansive, how large will this be here? Oh, well, like that. <laughs> How large will it be in America? We don't know yet. You know, it'll be big, I think. We're just blowing up the balloon. There's lots of things. You know, we just got a friend of ours who's in electronics. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you about this chap who's called Alex. And he's great. He's a Greek fella. And he's Even invented, he's Greek, he? he's invented really incredible things, you see. So uh, that'll be big. Hello, I'm Alexis uh, from Apple Electronics. Uh, I would like to say hello to all my brothers around the world and uh, to all the girls around the world and to all the electronic people around the world. Uh, and uh, that is Apple Electronics. So the idea was we'd go to America and we'd say, Apple is starting, you know, send us your huddled talent, you know, and we, are, we were interested. And uh, so we wanted a nice big launch. Um, I had sort of a strange feeling. I, I was very nervous. I had like a sort of real sort of personal paranoia on me. I don't know if it was what I was smoking at the time, but it was very strange that for me. And I remember sitting up there and being interviewed and John was doing great. And he had a um, bus driver or prefect badge he was wearing. They said, what's that mean? Mr. Lennon, can you tell us what it is you're wearing, that button and those... Uh... Well, it's just <coughs> a white button. And that's bus prefect. Uh, and that's what? Bus prefect. Bus prefect. In charge of the bus. And then they went on the Johnny Carson show, but Johnny Carson wasn't there. It was Joe DiMaggio, I think, was the the guy, because Johnny was on holiday. And, uh, you know, it was John, you know, one of, I think one of the things John said on that show was like, you know, we'll just spin it like a top and see where it goes. What do you see in the years ahead? Uh, for oh, yourself. Larry, you know, an expanding vista. Apple, you know, we sign set it up and then see where it goes. It's like a top, and we set it going and hope for the best. That was, <laughs> that was pretty much what happened, actually. 
And so it was that the Beatles began to put the feelers out for new and exciting talent to add to the Apple Records fold. Surprisingly, the very first pressing ever made on Apple Records, with the serial number Apple One, was never released to the public, rather recorded specially and given to a Beatle wife on her 21st birthday. The song? The Lady is a Champ, a reworded version of the swing classic The Lady is a Tramp. The recipient? Maureen Starkey, wife of Ringo. And the artist? Well, not one who was signed to the new label. He was already kind of a big deal. It was just old Blue Eyes himself, Mr. Frank Sinatra. There's no one like her, but no one at all. And as for charm, hers is like wall to wall. She married Ringo. And she could have had Paul. That's why the lady is a champ. Creates excitement whenever it's dull. She just appears, and there goes the lull. She merely smiles. And you're out of your skull. That's why the lady is a champ. The folks who do and don't meditate agree she's great. They mean Maureen. I've got more lyrics. Right after this vamp Because the lady is a champ Though we've not met I'm convinced she's a gem I'm just S.S. But to me she's Big M Mainly because she prefers me to them. That's why the lady is a champ. I have lots of fans, well, at least one or two. But Peter Brown called me to tell me it's true. She sleeps with Ringo, but she thinks of you. That's why the lady is a champ. But I can boast, boast as much, as much as I please. The fact is that she's his wife, but that's life. But it's her day. So I whistle and stamp Because the lady The charming lady Mr. Ringo's lady Is a champ May I toast you All the way Lift my glass 
and softly say, I have thought for you this day, but beautiful thoughts for you and for your Ringo that I must express with a warm and deep affection of FS. Would you kindly ask the guys if they'd grab a glass and rise? Cause I think we'd harmonize, but beautiful. May your birthdays and your birthday candles softly gleam and glow. For that would be but beautiful, I know. One of the first artists actually signed to Apple Records, though not the first to release music through the Beatles label, was a young singer-songwriter hailing from North Carolina, who would soon become a household name and one of the most enduring and highly respected recording artists of our time. How we signed each of the artists we did sign uh, are each kind of separate stories and actually, actually each very different kinds of stories. Something in the way she moves Looks my way, calls my name Seems to leave this troubled world behind And if I'm feeling down and blue Or troubled by some foolish game She always seems to make me change my mind And I feel fine anytime she's around me now She's around me now Almost all the time And if I'm well you can tell She's been with me now She's been with me now Quite a long, long time And I feel fine James Taylor was a coincidence. I mean, James came to me through a mutual friend. Danny Korchmar, who's a guitar player and record producer in America, James decided to head to England and Danny gave him my phone number. So. James called me when he got here. He'd made a demo tape and uh, called me and said, you know, I'm a friend of Danny's. He gave me a number, can I come and see you? So he came over, played me his tape that evening, and I loved it, um, was m- most impressed by it, and essentially said, look, it so happens I've just started work at this brand new record label, because um, I'd already made it clear that if I found somebody I loved, I, I would have the right to sign them. I wrote a memo, which we found just the other day, explaining that I'd found this singer-songwriter. I thought he was very good. Obviously, if all the Beatles had hated it, it would have been difficult, but they didn't. So I said, you know, I'm, well, you're signed. You know, come sign with the record label. And that's what happened. It was quite fast and quite simple. We never really got much from the send-in tapes, but because people knew we were interested, we got, we, for instance, Peter Asher brought along James Taylor. Yes, well, I, the, when I got actually started at Apple in April '68, James Taylor was already there. He was in the office with um, Paul and Peter Asher. To be in London in 1968 and to be signed to and recording with 
uh, the Beatles, seeing them every day in the it's, studio. Well, th this is the, the, the part that people may not know, is that you were the first non-English act or non-British act to be non signed. Non-Beatles. Non non -Beatles. First non-Beatles. First act. First act, other yeah. than the Beatles, signed to Apple. Yeah. How did that come about? Uh, you know, it was just good luck. But of course, it followed a, a number of years of bad luck, so, but. <laughs> I guess that's how that works. Yeah. I was introduced to uh, Peter Asher, who, uh, of course, had been part of the British invasion of. Peter and Gordon. Peter and Gordon, yeah. yeah. Peter really, he's the one who gave me my big break. And so. what was he at Apple? He had just signed on as head of A&R, which is essentially a talent scout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was looking for people to sign. It, it couldn't have been better, better timed. And uh, I went over to visit Peter, and um, I played him my little demo. It was on a reel-to-reel -reel, uh, yeah. tape, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he liked it, and I, uh, he gave me a guitar, and I played a few other things. And, uh, ultimately, he said, yeah, this sounds good. Let's go to Apple and see if we can interest uh, a Beatle in it. So that's what we did. We went over there. And, and the way Peter recalls it, uh, I, I have very little memory of the day because I'm, I'm nervous now. But at that point, I was like uh, vibrating at about 440 hertz. An A. An yes, a. an A. I, I, was, I, was really, I was really nervous, and I, and I barely remember it. I, I felt as though I, I was underwater for the entire day. So who was there when you get there? Did, were there any Beatles available? Did there they were. get one of them out of their crate? The way Peter remembers it, <laughs> yes, that's right. They, they busted a seal on a, on a can of, be, of Beatles. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, no, uh, Paul McCartney and George Harrison were there. And uh, um, the way Peter remembers it is that he just, we went into uh, uh, a room at, uh, in, in Baker, Baker Street, which is where the Apple offices were at that point. And uh, uh, he just, Peter leaned out of the door into the hallway and said, uh, is there a beetle in the house? <laughs> and and it, it turned out there, there were two beetles. Sure, that's enough. But Peter said, listen, that, I've got this guy here. I'd like to sign him to the label, but, but so let's take a listen. And I, I played uh, Something in the Way She Moves to uh, George and Paul, and I, I don't actually remember the, the anything about it. <laughs> I mean... Have you heard to Paul? Does Paul remember the moment? Uh, yeah, Paul does remember it uh, vaguely, you know, because, um, you know, it was... They had a lot going on. Yeah, they had a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. They were recording the White Album at the time. They were, too. Did you really record your first album with them? Which was, was that Sweet Baby James? Or was that uh, no, James Taylor? that was James Taylor. James Taylor. Yeah. James Taylor. Did you do that while they were recording White Album at the same time? Yes, I did. They, the, it, it turned out that you know, they usually recorded at Abbey Road. But Abbey Road didn't have an eight-track machine. And uh, there was only one eight-track machine in Britain at the time. And that was uh, at a studio called Trident, which was in Leicester Square. So uh, the, the Beatles just booked it solid for a couple of months. And uh, we took the time they weren't using. We're signing more artists and everything. And, uh... There's quite a few people, yeah. We've got uh, a singles album should be out in the States in a couple of weeks' time. James Taylor. Mm. It's a guy who writes all his own material. 
Carolina in my mind was not on the demo tape. He wrote that subsequently. During the time he was in London, he was staying at my flat. After he came over that evening, he didn't leave. Um, Carolina in my mind, he wrote while on holiday in uh, Ibiza and came back from a week's holiday and played me that song. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Now can't you just feel the moonshine? And ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Yes, I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. Karen, she's a silver sun. You best walk her away and watch it shine. Watch her, watch the morning come. A silver tear appearing now. I'm crying, ain't I? I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. There ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. Whisper something soft and kind. And hey, babe, the sky's on fire. I'm dying, ain't I? I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Can you see the sunshine? Can you just feel the moonshine? And ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Yes, I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. Dark and silent late last night, I think I might have heard the highway call. Geese in flight and dogs at bite. And signs it might be omens say I'm going. Gone to Carolina in my mind Now with a holy host of others standing round me No, still I'm on the dark side of the moon And it looks like it goes on like this forever You must forgive me If it's up and in my mind I'm gone to Carolina sunshine can't you just feel the moonshine and ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind yes i'm gone to carolina in my mind in my mind i'm gone to carolina can you see the sunshine now can you just feel the moonshine and ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind I'm gone to Carolina in my mind Gotta make it back home again soon Gotta get back to Carolina soon Gotta make it back on home again soon Gotta get back to Carolina soon Carolina, yeah Gotta get back on soon James Taylor's Carolina In My Mind, featuring Paul McCartney on bass and an uncredited George Harrison on backing vocals and recorded at Trident Studios around the same time the Beatles were recording some tracks for the White Album.
The song Taylor played as part of his audition, Something in the Way She Moves, would provide an obvious inspiration for the first line of George's classic love song to Patty the following year. James Taylor is somewhat tall, and he sings on Apple. There ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. Whisper something soft and kind. James Taylor is somewhat tall, and he sings on Apple his songs of tomorrow today. Sounds of laughter, here comes sunshine. Smiling faces all around. James Taylor is somewhat tall, and he sings on Apple his songs of tomorrow today in an album that fuses the mind to love. It's a heavy experience. It's all a matter of opening up your eyes and looking around. Cause it's all there Yeah, baby said it's all there A chance viewing of a television talent show by one of swinging London's most recognisable faces would begin a chain of events which would see the signing of the artist who, apart from the Beatles themselves, would represent the first release on Apple Records. And here's your host, Huey Green. Ladies and gentlemen, your longest running winner in Opportunity Knox closes our show this evening with a number that got her on the road to fame and fortune for the first time. It's turn, turn, turn. Many of you have written and said, can't she sing it again? Of course she can if you want it. The young lady who your votes have done so much for, Mary Hopkin, again for whom Opportunity Knox. Paul McCartney had phoned me up because he'd been phoned by Twiggy, who had been watching Opportunity Knox with Huey Green, and Twiggy had called Paul and said, you must turn on your television, this girl is remarkable. She was watching Mary Hopkin. To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn And a time to every purpose under heaven A time... Mary Hopkin was the main thing, you know, right? Uh, I didn't really bring her, but uh, she was on a talent show. Mary Hopkins came from the uh, Huey Green, you know, whatever his show was called. Opportunity knocks. To laugh, a time to weep. Paul then said, we have to sign this girl. So Derek and myself were detailed to go to Wales and sign Mary Hopkin, which we did. And a time to McCartney um, sort of got hold of you after the show, didn't he? That's right, yes, after, after the first appearance on Opportunity Knox, yes. So it all happened very quickly after that. <laughs> I can't remember the song he actually did on Opportunity Knox. Do you remember it? You must remember. I did a few songs, but the, the, the main the one, one I think, was Turn, Turn, the Pete Seeger song. Of course, Turn, mm. Turn, Turn. Yeah, lovely song too. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what did Paul, what was the first thing that, uh, that Paul, did he phone you up or phone your agent or...? Uh, yeah, well, I, I got a telegram and uh, to ring Apple Records, and I found I was talking to Paul, so uh, well, you <laughs> it was very exciting shattered. at the time. I finally got over it after eight <laughs> years, so... <laughs> right, it must have been at the time, it must have been a, a sort of emotional... Uh, oh, uh, yes, it was very exciting, yeah, because I, I was a Beatles fan, still am. <laughs>
Harry, I, um... I see you have a new guitar. Where'd you get that from? Well, it's a present from George Harrison. That's a present from George Harrison. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I understand you went the other night to the premiere of the new picture, Yellow Submarine. Is that right? Yes. Did you enjoy it? Oh, it was fabulous, yes. It was fabulous. Your record's coming out on the Apple label next month? Yes, next month. Next month. We wish you all the success in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Give her a nice round. Mary Hoffman, ladies and gentlemen. Your favorite and the Beatles' favorite, Mary Hopkins. Coming from Wales, Mary Hopkin had a folky presence which was very popular in the late 1960s. Her first ever release for Apple, released in the UK on the very same day as Hey Jude, was a nostalgic, anglicized version of a Russian love song, produced by Paul McCartney himself. Once upon a time When Paul signed Mary Hopkin, he already knew he wanted to produce the record. I knew the song he wanted to make the first single. So he, he had a plan in mind the day we signed it. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. We'd sing and dance forever and a day. We'd live the life we choose. been to a nightclub and heard this duo, Gene and Francesca, sing this song, Those Were the Days, and uh, had filed it away in his, in his music genius memory. Turned out that the melody was some traditional Russian thing, but they'd written the words. And the busy years went rushing by us. We lost our starry notions on the way. If by chance I'd see you that record. There was a classical composer friend of mine who, who'd done the strings on James, who we used to do the orchestra parts on Those Were The Days as well. Those Were The Days became a number one single in 20 countries and number two in the US, held out from the number one spot for three weeks by Hey Jude. And of course you had the, uh, the unique, I suppose, um, record of actually toppling the Beatles, stopping the Beatles from getting to number one because Hey Jude was around at the same time as Those Were The Days. Yeah, well, I didn't really stop them. We, we both got there, but, you know. Yeah, well, the sort Beatles dropped out a lot quicker them. than you did with Hey Jude. You yeah. stayed there for six weeks and they kind of got in at number two, mm. uh, and then or number one, and then, and then dropped out very quickly, whereas Those Were The Days you know, right. sort of stuck around for a bit. <laughs> they must have been pretty cheesed off about that, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, well, you, you were part of the, the brigade, weren't you? The, mm. Apple, the Apple family. With a brand new artist to work with, Paul McCartney produced Mary Hopkins' debut album, Postcard, 
and penned another hit single for her.
Although having discovered Mary Hopkin and set her on a path to stardom, Paul didn't work with Hopkin past this point, with production duties being handed to Mickey Most and her future husband, Tony Visconti. Hopkin became resistant to Paul's demands about song choices and direction, and she began to work with others. Paul and I sort of drifted apart because Paul was sort of initially concerned with the Beatles, which is understandable. Yeah. So he was pretty busy. What's he like to work with? I think he was very good. I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and I was I was pretty naive about everything, and rather timid about you know putting forward my opinions. So more or less, every, everything I did was sort of Paul's decision. But as I got stronger, I, I think if I'd been stronger at the time, I might have sort of discouraged things going towards the commercial side and, and stuck more to the folk thing. But Paul sort of decided I sounded too much like Joan Baez and said, well, that's no good, you know. Really? But, um, I never thought of that, actually. I never thought of you in that context. Did he sort oh, of well, sit, that's how I did started he sit off, opposite you in the studio? You know, like the producer sits in the glass box booth and you mm -hmm. sit and, and sort of hurl abuse at you. Oh, to, to no, no. I mean, I'm just no wondering way. what kind of a producer he was. Cause the oh, no, he was very, very sensitive. Because very the, sort of I think producers who are musicians themselves that yes. make far, you know, are far better at their job. A number two placing in the 1970 Eurovision Song Contest with Knock Knock Who's There gave Hopkin one of her last hit singles before she left Apple Records. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next time as we continue the story of Apple Records. Until next time... Mm -hmm.